Love medicine and miracles revolutionize the way patients recover from serious illnesses. Buckle on up as you are about to hear from the author, a legendary doctor way ahead of his time. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest today on The Motivation Show is a retired surgeon and world-renowned pioneer in the connection of mind, body, and healing. He has helped millions of patients combat serious illnesses, and in many cases, his teachings help them beat the odds and achieve remission and often complete healing, doing so by utilizing their innate abilities to use their mind and the power of love as perhaps their strongest medicine. His groundbreaking book, Love, Medicine and Miracles, published in 1986, sold millions of copies. But most importantly, he gave hope to the world that we could look within ourselves for the coping, healing, and perhaps the cure. This show I am dedicating to Loretta, who battled a very challenging illness for 17 years, far longer than many doctors would have believed was possible. Loretta was a student of today's guest, read his book and attended his lectures. Loretta did not believe those 17 years of survival and joy were a matter of luck, but rather a byproduct of the immense love and mindset she created and greatly admired and applied the teachings of this mentor who was way ahead of his time. It gives me great pleasure to extend a warm welcome to Dr. Bernie Siegel. Thank you, Eli. Yeah, you're right. I was way ahead of my time. And I have a bunch of magazines in the house that I get a kick out of looking at. You know, my face is on the cover, but the word controversial. I mean, the articles that were written were really critical of me. That means you're doing something right, Bernie. Yeah, but yeah, but I'm still talking. And now you can't get the magazines to come back and say, hey, you know, he was right. <laughs> Let's write an article about him. Because I was told you're giving false hope. I said, that's an oxymoron. You can't have false hope. You know what I mean? You could win the lottery, even though you have one chance in five million, but it could happen. And I was showing people what I learned from those who were successful. And what's interesting is psychiatrists understand this much better than what you would say regular doctors. Because, you know, if you got, like you were talking about, somebody with life-threatening illness, oh, I'm so depressed, I'm going to go see a psychiatrist. They learned and have written about certain personalities that exceed expectations in survival. One of them called it an immune competent personality. Mm -hmm. And he published an article about it. That's when the AIDS epidemic came out. 
And this is what I learned from the people in the support group. There were certain people who didn't die when they were supposed to. And I'd say, how come you didn't die? Because a lot of these people I thought were dead. Um, you know, I knew them, but they didn't come to meetings or back to the office or anything. And then you'd go out and give a lecture and look who's sitting in the front row. I like the way you, you said they were supposed to die as if it's like preordained. And it's, well, that's it's, what yeah. they were told, but they were not the kind who was so depressed they went home, climbed into bed and died. I mean, let me give you the other side of the coin. The effect it has on, this was a gentleman who had lung cancer. He was doing okay, developed cataracts. So he went to, you know, to get cataract surgery because it was really screwing up his life. His insurance company told him, we're not paying for cataract surgery. You're going to be dead in six months. That's literally the letter he got from them. Ooh. And I don't make up any of these stories. He went home, lay down on his bed, and died in five days. Wow, the power and of I the mind. Family to sue the insurance company, and they did because they killed the man by taking his life away. And see, the other side of the coin is when you call up to ask, how come you didn't invite me to the funeral? And the guy you thought was dead answers the phone. And his comment <laughs> to me was, he moved to Colorado to die in the mountains. And I called up a year later wondering why the family didn't call me to come to the funeral. And he said, it was so beautiful here, I forgot to die. You know? And so the people who don't die have those stories to tell. And I was teaching people what I call survival behavior, you know? And it, it made them look at their lives. And I'll tell you, an interesting test everybody can give themselves. When you have something wrong, physical, emotional, whatever, say to yourself, how would I describe this to somebody? What words would I use to tell them what I'm going through? Two examples. One was a woman about to be admitted to the hospital with a week of migraine headaches. And the pain, she said she couldn't stand it. And I happened to be in the opera, I mean, in the emergency room when I was told about her because I was speaking the way I'm talking. They said, shh, keep your voice down. She has a terrible headache. So I went in to help her. And I said, let me take you through a meditation and try to relax you and ease the pain while you're waiting for a hospital room. And in the meditation, I said, how would you describe your pain so we can relieve it? She said, pressure. So I did a meditation about relieving the pressure in your life. Because she wasn't my patient. If she were my patient, I would have said, all right, what in your life fits that word? So we finished the meditation. I went out of the room and I was seeing some other patients. And the nurse came over and said, it's her marriage. The headache's gone. She's going home to fix it. <laughs> oh boy. That impressed the hell out of me, you yeah. know? And the other was a patient who had cancer. So I said, what's it like? Failure. How does that fit your life? Well, my body failed. I said, that's not my question. How does failure fit your life? Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. Oh my God. I must have been a failure as a child. Wow. And that's why, I see, the nice side is if somebody says, what is it? It's a wake up call. It's a new beginning. Then I know they're on the right path, you know, to healing versus all those negative words. But people need to keep learning. Yeah, many years ago, I had lots of trouble with vertigo. And, you know, it was hard to get out of bed. And one day I stood up in the bedroom and it starts whirling around. And I said, hey, dumbbell, why don't you do what you do with patients? 
What's it like? Well, the world is spinning around. Yeah, maybe you need to slow down. Ooh, I like that. I thought, what what a classic symptom, because what would keep me from traveling, lecturing, going? You're dizzy, so you have to lie down and rest. And, you know, I worked that all out, and I don't have that trouble anymore. But that impressed me when I finally, you know, lived my sermon, I'd put it, and say, hey, dumbbell, why don't you do what you do with patience? I like that, because there are, there are clues that are left behind for you. You just got to see those clues, right, right yeah. So I always say I lived the sermon. And uh-huh. people often complimented me, and they'd say, we know you're honest. I said, what are you talking about? Your wife and children are here listening to you. And my wife participated in the lectures too. And I thought, that's damn interesting. How many people going out, you know, well-known and giving sermons and lectures have their family sitting in the front row because maybe it's not them living what they're preaching, you know? But I lived what I preached, so I didn't worry about our kids being there. They knew if I said something, they could remind me I had said it, you know, and to live what I was saying. Well, it's very apropos to have you on this show right now because we're in a COVID-19 world and people are stuck at home and they're frustrated and they can't do the things they used to do. uh, And their mind is gravitating uh, to the negative. And as you've said in your books, you know how the mind easily gets into that negative thinking. So how does somebody who's just frustrated and thinks the world is collapsing on him and can't see the forest from the trees, you know, what do they do? Well, my first reaction was Corona is virus is to correct things. Cause I thought that underlying message, stay at home, stay at home. And it suddenly occurred to me, our home is the planet earth. You know, it isn't just going in a building and saying, okay, I'm home. We're all here on the same planet, in the same home. And we have to realize we're all neighbors and we affect each other. And so let's all say, yes, we're home. Let's take care of our home because it belongs to all of us and treat each other like family. Mm -hmm. Rather than I don't like your religion, I don't like your race, I don't like your skin color, I don't like what you're eating. I mean. Stop fighting with each other. We're all at home. We may have different habits, different environments, but it's basically all our home. It's in the Bible there, Bernie, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself, you know, right? Yeah. I mean, we walk yeah. out of the churches and the synagogues and the mosques, we learn all the right things, and then we come out and, and we don't practice it. <laughs> and some people use religion as a way to attack other people. See, one yeah. of the things, even God, that I learned, oh, what's his name? Uh, Billy Graham in a a newspaper column he had. I was reading the paper, I saw his name, I'm reading it. Does God want me to have cancer? Somebody wrote him. I thought he'd say no. He said, possibly. I said, what are you talking about possibly? And basically the message was, supposing you win the lottery and therefore stop going to church because you don't need God anymore. Then God could say, oh, I'll get him back. I'll give him cancer. I thought, (laughs) what a horrible thing to say to people. You know, that God may give you cancer. And I love Maimonides from a thousand years ago. Two important things that he said. One was, disease is a loss of health. It's not God punishing. And we are, as the Bible tells us, supposed to help our neighbor find what they've lost. 
That's something I like. The other is, well, I'll give you two examples. One was Cat Fancy Magazine. Give you a test question. You have nine cats. You and your husband smoke. The cat's having breathing problems. One gets lung cancer and dies. What would you do? Stop smoking. That's Wrong. what I would do. Wrong answer. <laughs> Wrong? Okay. Yeah. I was reading the magazine because we always have a house load of pets. And the woman went on to say, Doug and I now smoke in the yard. We're not killing our cats anymore. We love our cats more than the convenience of smoking indoors. Mm. And how the magazine could publish that without saying, ma'am, you're killing yourself and your husband's killing himself. Why don't you be as nice to your cats as, you, as you know, yourself? Yeah. Because again, that was Maimonides' second statement. He said, if people took as good care of themselves as they do their animals, they would suffer fewer illnesses. And you know, that's Bernie, a thousand years ago. You're so right. I mean, I, look, I, I knew somebody that had a, a tube in his throat and uh, he was posting on Facebook. This, he, he might be uh, buying it. <laughs> That's his last uh, rights are coming around. Somehow he pulled through. And only then did he decide he was going to make the change. Why, why do people wait till only when it's kind of like almost irreversible? It's about self-love. You know, all the violence, everything is related to not being loved by your parents, basically when you're growing up if you grow what was it from east of eden john steinbeck i love this line he said almost everyone experiences rejection with rejection comes a desire for revenge with revenge and there is the story of mankind mm. and you know when you read all the violence headlines you know people going out driving cars into crowds shooting people killing people what's going on they were, they're, they're making up for the rejection. They're getting even, you know? If they're not killing their parents, they're killing other people who haven't loved them and treated them properly, you know, the whole world. And if you grow up with love, you'd never think of doing anything like that at all. And I say, you wanna solve the world's problems, love every child and love one another, you know, be neighbors, care for each other, yeah. Well, Bernie, about a year ago, my heart was pumping a lot faster than I would have liked to have pumped. I uh, rushed myself to the emergency room, went through the whole process there. I can tell you, I felt like a, a sort of a machine and was treated like a machine. Not, not that it was horrendous, but it wasn't great. It was right. just like I was just another you know, person coming through there and I didn't feel a whole lot of love. Now I can tell you that if I'd got a lot of love, I think I would have calmed down a little bit, made right. my heart race, my heart rate would have gone down, but they didn't help the process. So there's still a lot of people who need to read your book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I've learned, it's really interesting what you just said, because my wife died two and a half years ago. And nine months after she died, it's like I was living the sermon. What organ in my body do you think went crazy after I, the woman I love died? Mm. My heart. Heart, Yeah. I had an abnormal rhythm. It's called uh, the fibrillation. Uh, yeah. Now, my wife was born on 9-9. See, I wasn't alone. She's with me still. Yes. I go to the emergency room, and I hear a guy yell, put him in room 9. I knew my wife's watching over me. Oh, they said, we don't have a room for you in the hospital yet. 
Next day, we got the room, 819. And eight is a new beginning, symbolically. And they add up to nine, nine. And then when I looked at my wristband, it blew my mind because my patient number has an eight, two nines, two sixes, and two threes. Everything, every time I go to the doctor or the hospital, I get a wristband, the case number and my number always added up to nines. And I've saved all those. And I can tell people that's not an accident. You know, our bodies die, but our soul, spirit, whatever you want to call it, continues on. And one more thing, I, I could take up the whole <laughs> show about this and my wife, but um, we were married on the 11th. Well, I'll hold this up so you see. It's a, that's a picture of my wife. I wear it over my heart. Mm -hmm. But on the back, I don't know if you can see, there are a whole oh, bunch yes. of coins. Yes. I have found a dime and a penny in incredible places. The 11. The 11, yeah. And imagine finding a dime and a penny in a bird bath. What the hell is it doing there? Okay. But when I went to clean it, I found the dime and a penny. Mm. And the other day was even the most mystical of all, which convinces me there are spirits. I was making the bed, same bed my wife and I slept in for over 60 years. And um, when I went to the other side to pull everything tight, I had my hands up like this and the sheets and blankets pulled out of my hands. Wow. It's like, what the? And they flopped over the other side. What's lying on the sheet in the bed? A dime and a penny. Wow. Huh? Now, there is no way I could ever explain that one. Someone's leaving clues, Bernie. Yeah. Who's that someone leaving so, those clues? I know she's around. Oh, that's Little sweet. Little things keep happening. See? So, I knew. I knew. And they all in our family, pennies from heaven. Because <laughs> they started when my mother died. Yeah. And a grandchild, this is what impressed me. Like, it get, because I was finding pennies, and I mentioned this. My mother just died, and I'm finding all. And one little pipsqueak of a kid said, they're pennies from heaven. And I thought, where the hell did that come from? And this little, like, five or six-year-old. But from that moment on, it became pennies from heaven in our family. And uh, I know that that connection is still there. And for people to understand that, you know, if you keep your mind quiet, then some amazing things can happen. And that's the most important aspect of all, because I've learned this from animal communicators, intuitive people. You have to quiet your mind. Mm. We're, 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 chatter, we're chatter minds all day long, yeah. right? You're not going to get messages. Mm. Because I had a patient, um, and she's still a friend. She came in the office one day. She said, I've learned you're not a normal doctor, so I brought you a message from one of your <laughs> dead patients. And she said the guy's name, it's from Frank. I put this in one of my books and she gave me his words. So I called his wife. I said, I don't want to upset you, but do you want to hear this? She said, sure. So I stated it and she let out a shriek. I said, look, I told you I don't want to upset you. You're not upsetting me. She said, that's what Frank said every time he left your meeting. And when my wife died, I'm waiting for Monica, that's her name, to call me. She doesn't know, she's not a neighbor, doesn't live here. And my wife died on Friday, Sunday the morning, the phone rang. Bernie, I got a call from a lady who was an opera singer. She said, Bobby is back with the family. Everything's fine. You don't have to worry. Blah, blah, blah. Wow. 
that what blew my mind was my wife's mother was an opera singer. Oh, wow. Now, it's one thing to tell me your wife's talking, you know. Right, yes, right. But how the hell do you know she was an opera singer? Yeah. And, and so I always say, if, if something happens, even if I can't explain it, I believe it. You know what I mean? I don't deny it or say, that's crazy. That couldn't have happened. So you, you don't need to see it to believe it then. Yeah. I don't need to explain. You don't need to happened. explain it. Yep. Yeah. But I, I will see it and experience it and accept it, even if I can't explain it. Because I know someday it will all come to me and uh, I will know. I mean, as a four-year-old, I almost choked on a toy. I had a near-death experience. I didn't know it was unique. You know, I'm four years old. This is a long time ago. I didn't tell everybody, oh, what a wonderful thing happened. Because I thought, oh, they all know about this. It must happen to everybody. And I was very upset, as a lot of kids are. I'm laughing because the first words out of my mouth is, who did that? I thought, this is wonderful. I prefer being dead. You know, <laughs> when you're four years old floating around and you can see and think, you know what I mean? You're out of a body, but everything's working. Yeah. And then to be back in the body, it was like, oh, this is so disappointing now. And my mother was in no way interested in my experience because when she came in and saw all the vomit and the pieces of toys and uh, she knew what had happened and uh, that I had almost choked. So she wasn't going to sit down and say, oh, that's interesting. Tell me what. <laughs> so do you, you think that near-death experience in such an early age influenced then basically I think you're, you're becoming a pioneer that, in the mind-body yeah, healing? Consciously, no, but I think unconsciously, mm, yes. Yeah. And I'll tell you, the other, even by shaving my head, I don't know why I had to do it back in the 1970s. Again, my family was terribly embarrassed. It was not the style. You know, it was one more thing that crazy father is gonna do. But it let people know I was wounded. And so everybody talked to me because mm. they knew he can't be normal. He's gotta be troubled to do that. <laughs> but then years later, I read Jung and he said, monks shave their head as a symbolic measure of uncovering their spirituality. Oh, that's powerful. When I read that, I realized that's what I needed to do. Yep. Because Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, when I drew a picture for her, her first question to me was, what are you covering up? Because she said, you use a white crayon, the paper's white. You don't need a white crayon. It's already white. You added a layer. And when I painted a portrait of myself, because I was an artist as a kid, and to heal me, I started painting again. So I did portraits of our pets, our kids, uh, every member of the family, pictures hanging in the house. Myself in surgical outfit, a cap, a mask, and a gown. Mm. You don't know it's me. And I realized you paint your portrait and you're hiding. But I knew what I was hiding from was all the pain, the emotions. Well, I'm writing books now, you know, keeping journals in those days. And my wife found the journal once and said, there's nothing funny in your journal. I said, my life isn't funny. What are you talking about? And then, thank God, she told me funny stories I told the kids and her in the evening, say when we had dinner, that had happened at the hospital. But I never put them in my journal. What got in the journal? All the things that went wrong and all the troubles you had that day. And mm -hmm. she helped wake me up to pay attention. And everybody needs to. 
pay attention to the good things too. Yeah, right. You know, don't just focus on what went wrong today. Why is it human nature to focus on that? You know, I, just I don't know what does yeah. that to us. What's psychology? Uh, yeah, I mean, let me because I put this in some, one of my books too. My wife did stand-up one-liners comedy because I saw the benefit it had to the audience, and I mean that literally. She would make people laugh for ten or fifteen minutes, uh, like a female Henny Youngman kind of thing, yeah. you know, and. One time, instead of taking her seat in the audience, I sat on the stage because it was too awkward to go down. And I mean, I was amazed at the change in the audience after they laughed for 15 minutes. Okay? They were all sitting up, smiling, looking healthier. And so after that, I made it a really a part of the talk, the therapy of laughter. And her comment, something I have in one of my books was, a smile improves your face value Laughter is contagious, be a carrier, and he who laughs, lasts. Ooh. And, you know, we need to remember those things. He who and, laughs, and, lasts. I like that. Yeah. See, we know from studies now that, see, things I was called crazy about. If you laugh, your immune function increases and your stress hormone levels go down. Yep. If you're in stress, the opposite happens. Right. And, you, and one student showed only with actors. He just gave them something funny to read and the immune function improved, stress hormone levels went down, gave them something tragic to act and the opposite happened. And they were only acting. And it even impressed his professor because his professor said, it's crazy. What difference can it make if they're acting? And then he, he let him do the study, you know, like as his thesis and he showed him it does make a difference. And so again, cancer patients who laugh, this was a study in one of the Scandinavian countries, they were told laugh for no reason every three or four hours. At the end of the year, more of them survived than the people who were in the control group and didn't laugh for no reason. Absolutely believe that. Patch Adams talked about that too. As far as I'm concerned, there's two, two pioneers, is you and Patch Adams. You know, now my big question is, you know, Robin Williams played Patch Adams. Who's going to play Bernie Siegel? Yeah, right. Well, and they'll have to shave too. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look, you know, what you're saying makes all the sense in and the let world. Me say, I admired Patch for being yep. different, you know, being willing to act that way. Oh, I have to tell you this one, because uh, I have pictures of him when he visited us, all of us together. But he and I spoke at a conference, and my wife too, and we all went to the airport. And we're walking through the airport, and I notice my wife drops back behind us. And I mean, I was busy talking to Pat, so I didn't know what the hell she's doing. Well, when we got to the gate for the plane, she said, you guys don't know what you did to the airport. Everybody thought you two had escaped from, you know, an insane asylum. <laughs> Patch is like over six feet tall, yeah. dressed in bizarre, you know, clown clothing. I've got a shaved head when it's totally- What a pair, what a pair. Yeah. And she said the whole airport was just staring and overwhelmed by you two guys. They didn't know what you, where you escaped from. So she said, I was having so much fun walking behind you and watching the reaction to the two of you. Yeah, he, he but you see, again, I, I act like a kid. Something I've learned from him and it was intrinsic. He had artificial poop. He'd go to the airport and put it down on the floor, you know? <laughs> And people would notice it and he'd say, oh, I'll clean it up. Don't worry. 
and they'd look at him like, what? <laughs> and he'd pick it up, you know? But it, 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 he got everybody laughing. So I do that too in very simple ways. You know, even if, if I stop at a toll station, if I go to a hotel, I walk up and say, how may I help you? And the people look at you like, what? You know, but then you meet kids too. Because at one toll station, the woman said, well, get out of the car, collect the tolls, let me go home. You know, and then you're friends with that person immediately. It's like two kids laughing together and the whole day is better. And I'd say to people, use this one. Wherever you go, what do people say to you? How are you today? Pretty I much. Say, I say, don't ask. <laughs> they look at me. I said, look, I got so many problems. I don't want you to remind me of them. So next time you see me, I want you to say, you're looking very well today. And I go into a market and there's a new clerk and she says, how are you today? I said, don't ask me. I don't want to remember all my trouble. Everybody in the store is like, what a rude, what a guy, what's wrong with him? Then an old time employee comes out of the back, sees me and said, oh, you're looking very well today. And the whole store bursted out laughing. Yeah. Because they'd heard me train the new clerk, see? And they realized, oh, he's kidding. And I think that's what we have to remember, you know, to everybody's got troubles, everybody's wounded. Yeah. And I tell people this often. I mean, stop and shop, I get poked in the back. I turn around, there's a lady with a bandage over her eye. She said, you are the only person in Stop and Shop who hasn't asked me what happened. I thought that was interesting, you know, that I'm a doctor, so bandage. And I said to her, oh, I know what happened. I have an abusive spouse also. And then she looked at me like, what? <laughs> but that impressed the hell out of me. You wear a bandage and everybody knows you got a problem and they talk to you about their problems and your problems. And I tell people often, Put on a bandage and go to work. Put on a bandage, go shopping. And watch how people treat you and what they say to you when they see you that way. And it, it really makes a difference. And so I love to react in that way to people. And I'd say one more thing so people know you as an individual. When you call a pizza restaurant, order Chinese food. And when you call the Chinese restaurant and they say, what would you like, order a pizza. <laughs> what happens? They get to know you because now you see if I can guarantee you, if I call up and say to the Chinese restaurant, I'm looking for a pizza. Um, they say, oh, Dr. Siegel, how are you doing today? You know what I mean? Yeah. There's nobody else calls up and orders the wrong food. Well, I'm going to be doing that from now on, I think. Yeah. Well, I don't know who so I am. Fun because you become a character. Yeah. You make yeah. them smile. Yeah. And they're glad to see you walk in the restaurant. Yeah, that's very healing. You know, there are some people that just are stuck in their fears. And, you know, intellectually, they know what you're saying. Intellectually, they know that, you know, there's no upside to being on the downside. But, you know, they're, they're, they're in pain and, and they're in fear. They think it's going to get worse. And they just can't get out of their own self. That's what induces it to become worse, too. Yeah, self-perpetuating. The, right? the body believes what the mind conceives of. I mean yeah. that literally. Yep. My patients at the hospital were called Siegel's crazy patients. Why? See, first I was considered crazy. Then it became a compliment because my patients, and these, again, I don't make up stories. You get a call from a radiation therapist. He said, Bernie, I thought the machine was broken. Then I saw your name in the chart. So I knew it was a crazy patient. She has no reaction to radiation. 
And so I said to her, how come you don't have any reaction? I get out of the way and I let it go to my tumor. Those are her exact words. Mm. Same thing with chemotherapy. I've had people send to me, because he makes people well all the time. I mean, they don't ask me, you know? So people come, yeah, I love them. I give them hope, I hug them. And my oncologist friend, because they learned it was fun to take care of these crazy people. He said to me, Bernie, I agree with her doctor. She's about two months to live, but he, this is written out. He said, I knew, I know you and your crazy patients. So I'll give her hope. Mm. In six weeks, she was in complete remission from her Remarkable. cancer. Wow. And his, you know, comment was, you know, tongue in cheek. Isn't chemotherapy wonderful? You know, because he knew this was one of the crazy patients and it had more to do with her beliefs and Dr. Siegel hugging her and loving her than it did the treatment. Yeah. Well, you talk about in, in uh, Love Medicine Miracles, you right. talk about someone who uh, actually says, thank God I have cancer. That's a very profound and powerful statement. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, people, I mean, one of the people that impressed me when I said I had to learn about faith. I didn't mention to you my past life, but I'll just make it brief. I, in past life, I'm sure I was in Ireland because of Irish connections that have come up in my life. And I killed with a sword. And when I had the past life experience, it was because somebody said over the phone, because I was so busy, you know, it's like I have an interview with you and somebody calls me and I say, look, I can't talk, I have an interview. Why are you living this life? I said to her, oh my God, I see myself with a sword in my hand, killing. Maybe that's why I'm a surgeon and why I have so many pets, killing animals and people. And when I had the whole scene, I can only explain to people like saying, you're watching a movie with yourself acting in it. And I cried for hours because the woman I killed in it was my wife. Wow. I went into a bedroom at night because I wanted to kill her while she was sleeping to make it easier. And I killed her dog because he was growling at me and that woke her up and I saw her as she turned over. And you'd say, why did I do that? See, I had to learn about faith because my, when I went to get therapy from James Hillman, the Jungian therapist, he said, Bernie, hear what you're saying. I said, what do you mean? You keep saying my Lord. I said, yeah the Lord of the castle, he said to me, go kill the neighbor's daughter. I want to get even with him for what he's done. And I said, why don't I kill him? And he said, no, I want you to kill her. What if I don't? I'll kill you. All right. I went. He said, go home and relive this. And as soon as he said that to me, I knew, because I had wondered, why did Abraham not say to God, take me, leave my kid alone? You know, why didn't Jesus jump off the cross? you know, and say to people, do you see who I am and what I can accomplish? So pay attention. And they had faith and knew that what they did would produce the results that were good for the world. And that changed me to learn, you know, I get back to shaving my head to uncover faith. I mean, there were so many things in my life that just sort of all came together. So yeah, I have faith now. I talk to God all the time. I have faith. And one woman went home to die. She was told she had a few months to live. She came back to the office and one of my partners called, 
Bernie, come in here. You're interested in this stuff. I go in. And he said, her tumor is gone. A pancreatic tumor. You could feel it. It was so big. And I said to her, tell them what you did. She said, ah, you know. I said, I know, I know. But tell them. She said, I went home and I left my troubles to God. Mm. And the mm. tumor disappeared. Mm. Somebody so think of the message her body now got. Yeah. She's at total peace. God yeah. is in taking mm. care of her. Love and, it. And the body says, oh, then we'll be okay. You know, no different than the people I mentioned getting chemo and radiation. Yeah, and yeah. Side effects, you know? take, take the burden off yourself. When you say draw a picture, some of them draw God as the source of their treatment. I mean it. Mm. God, the x-ray machine, God is putting yeah. the IV in, you know, mm. with the chemo. And so their body says, oh, then this is good. I don't have a problem. Oh, yeah. I'm a good hand. somebody else who drew the devil giving me poison. Now they're having literally suppression of their white blood count on the way to the doctor mm. because of their image of it. So right. Yeah. So I've learned picture. So, it, it, you know, picture, th 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 that's kind of like the, the white lab coat effect where you go to the doctor and then all of a sudden your blood pressure goes up. But then when you're not in the doctor's office, right. all of a sudden your blood pressure's down, right? Yeah. It's, it's how you feel and your reaction. And I've yeah. learned, you know, to work with my mind too. So, um, you know, we have a business audience that listens to this. And, you know, when I think of the average entrepreneur, right? it's long hours, it's hard work, you know, often uh, you have to choose between whether you're going to go out, maybe take a run or whether you are going to, you know, uh, apply yourself for another four hours and plug away at the computer and slave away. So how do you balance, you know, the fact that you're always having to have a bottom line versus, you know, meditation, well, yoga, if running. You my mother, she would say, do what makes you happy. Mm. Okay. Stop thinking and do what makes you happy. Now, I mean, I didn't have an advantage over business people. I, uh, I was at the hospital on call at night. Our kids were not happy that their father was a surgeon, you know, because in those days you had to be near a telephone. Can I, can I ask you what made you leave? Because I think, was it about 1989 you left surgery? Um, yeah. Which I assume was Somebody pretty lucrative. said to me, did you ever think of talking? or writing and helping more people. I mm. said, no, I got a C in writing in college, so I'm not a writer, mm. uh, but I learned again, you can. And you see all the people came together, we wrote a book. And then I went out talking and I was talking to more people. I've been to every state and multiple foreign countries. Now, if I had stayed in the operating room, or the office, I couldn't have touched all those people's can, lives. Can I so, ask you, Bernie, can I interject for a second? That's yeah. a, because it's very powerful to me what you just said, because first of all, I, I mean, at least my impression back in 1989, surgeons probably made a pretty good income, right? Mm -hmm. So to give that up, to go for something that's, you don't know where that path is gonna lead you, you don't know what kind of income you're gonna get. How did you take that leap of faith? It, it was because I wanted to help people. Hmm. That's the mission. The You're on a mission. And, and, yeah. and that was more important than the money. Doing workshops, traveling. Hmm. Um, as I said, it's amazing how you're heading around the world. And that's when you learn about people. Let me tell you. See, you give a lecture in New York City, you get a very different response yeah, than yeah. Montana. And I may add, the cancer 
cure rate is better in Montana than it is in New York City. And why because is that? your neighbor is treating you. Mm. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And so I yeah. began to learn how I talk to people was also important. I loved insulting New Yorkers. <laughs> I grew up in New York, okay? I was born in Brooklyn. But I get up at the New York Open Center and I say, I can't stand New Yorkers. You know, you're also, you're intellectual, you're in your heads, you're not friendly, you don't listen, you don't. And I would talk and talk. And finally, a hand would go up. Yes, I paid to come here and all you're doing is insulting me. I said, I waited until you were all ready for me to begin. Now that I've gotten through to your feelings, I'll start my lecture. <laughs> and then they would laugh and know it was part of what I was teaching them. But, you know, if I'm in upstate Maine, as I said, or Montana or Texas in the middle of nowhere, if I ever acted like that, people would cry and leave, you know? Yep, and, yep. and I learned that uh, how we treat people has so much to do with their ability to survive. If everybody acts like family, mm. it's a hell of a lot different than if you're a case. You know, at, at Sloan Kettering, one of the oncologists there, because they would always give me a hard time, you know, the intellectual cancer center. And he sent me a book. It was called Healing Lessons. And I start reading it. And I realize it's about his wife developing cancer. And in the book, he wrote, I want to apologize to Dr. Siegel. And as soon as I read that, I called him. I said, what are you apologizing for? You haven't caused me any trouble. He said, I said I was apologizing for what I used to think of you. Oh. Now that my wife has cancer, you are an enormous help. Oh, wow. You're with us in the living room every day. Wow. Love you know, it. Listening to your tapes, reading your book. And yeah. And so he was honest enough to write me and say that, what he had learned because of his wife having the disease. Yeah, yeah. And I always say they're natives and tourists. If you're just treating it, well, Jung said this, again, hundreds of years ago. The diagnosis helps the doctor, but it doesn't help the patient. Mm, like the that. key thing is the story. For yep. It alone shows human background and human suffering, and only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate. And that's why I learned to treat people, not a disease. Mm, I love that. You know, in your book, you also mentioned uh, three words which really resonate with me. You call it the uh, mutual investment society. Mm. You know, that, that uh, relationship between the doctor and the patient and how really important it is, uh, not just for somebody to walk into your room, you know, uh, very, very cold and very scientific, and I'm a doctor and I know it all, but to actually have the compassion and the, and, yeah. and the connection. I learned to put my desk against the wall. So there was no separation when people came in. And a lot of them were confused. They'd walk in and say, is this a doctor's office? I'd say, yes, why? Well, look where your desk is. Because the way I learned it, again, I more often was invited to medical schools by the students, not the faculty, mm. okay? or a medical school graduation. And I would say to them, draw yourself working as a doctor. And the first time I did that, it was like getting hit in the head with a mallet. Because what they drew, okay, let's say there were 100 students in it. One picture 
showed equipment, no human beings. And the statement is, draw yourself working as a doctor. At the other extreme, there was just one picture where this young man is kneeling in front of a wheelchair, handing a lady a tissue. See, I always say, that's being a doctor. He's helping her. He isn't curing a disease, but he's curing her problem. She needs a tissue. All of the other students drew themselves sitting behind a desk with their diploma on the wall behind them. No other person in the room. Wow. Working as a doctor, sitting yeah. behind a desk. And, and that blew my mind that this has nothing to do with people. And that's what a lot of medical schools, schools still are not looking into. Why are you a doctor? They, you know, it could be, I want to impress everybody. That's what my mother and father wanted me to do, uh, you know, and, and so it's not your life. Ego. Again, you were talking a right? little bit about like the business world. Yeah. So many stories from that. See, you learn, you have a few months to live. What do you do? You quit your job. And I don't make up, again, these stories. I wanted to play the violin. My parents wanted me to be a lawyer. So I have a few months to live. I'm going home playing my violin. A year later, he had a job in an orchestra playing a violin, and he's not dead. You know, so I have met so many people who, in a sense, are successful in the business world, but miserable. So when they get the life-threatening illness, mm, yeah. I'm getting the hell out of here. They, they finally the find their true calling. Like yeah. 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 And again, then they don't die when they're supposed to because their body, and loving yourself. One more story. I don't know how much time you have to go on, but <laughs> this is a woman who had polio as a child. So she had deformities from the muscle wasting. And she said, I never liked my body because it never looked normal. Then she developed a neurological disease which was affecting her even further with weakness and paralysis. And she said, I'm expecting to die, but I don't want to die hating my body. So I started lying down in front of the mirror, totally naked and loving myself inch by inch. She literally had a routine. I love my toes. I love my feet. I love my ankle. I mean, every part of her body. And lo and behold, she went into complete remission of her neurological disease. And, you know, these are the stories I hear from people, and it's just amazing. Well, I, I just love that. And, you know, you've been so generous sharing all these stories. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, uh, what you're doing, because, uh, you know, you're still out there plugging away, putting books out. You know, you, you're impressive, I'll tell you that. You know, you wrote this uh, new book with your grandson, right? Yes. Uh, when you realize how perfect everything is, a conversation about life between grandfather and grandson. Tell us. Let me tell you why. I was trying to put together a book, really call it Bible 2. But it's the first one you mentioned is this one. And I loved it. I mean, he's such a bright, spiritual kid. Because I said to him, if we both wrote the book, why is there one bird on the cover? And he said, that's the reader finding their way. Mm. And he is something else. He is so spiritual at age 30. Charlie Siegel. So, yeah. Charlie, you got to give him a plug. 60 years to get to where he was. Yep. But I, I was talking to him because I was writing this book, No Endings, Only Beginnings, a subtitle, A Doctor's Notes on Living, Loving, and Learning Who You Are. 
I wanted to call it Bible too, but they didn't <laughs> want to do that. But it, what I ended up doing is using this from Charlie as an introduction. Begin your quest for truth. These are all Charlie's words. Where is God in all of this? You ask yourself, head in your hands, water washing over your body from a shower or the rain or your tears. Where is God in all of this? The question echoes across the whole of the gymnasium as your peers laugh and the fear sets in. Where is God in all of this? It is a question we all ask at some point in our lives. Turn the question inward and let it reverberate through your heart, your mind, your soul, every fiber of your very being. Where is God in all of this? He is in your heart, in your breath, he is in every action you take and in every life you touch. Will you accept his presence here? Will you act as an agent of miracles today? Where is God in all of this? God is with me and I am with God. Repeat it, feel it, live it. And it's from a poem he wrote called The Answer Lies Within. Oh. Now, you know, he sent me that and he blows me away. Knock your socks so, off, Bernie. Then I started sending him poems I wrote, you know, in my journals and all my poems when I was dealing with pain and difficulties and, and just got it out of my system. And the two of us, it was just amazing how many poems were alike. You know it's what a, I mean? It's a poetic duet. Yeah. You know? Instead and of a so musical duet. It ended up becoming a book, which yeah. I love. And he's also, I'm an artist, he's a photographer. Mm -hmm. So his photographs are in there. I mean, there's so many connections between the two of us. We're into words, but also we're both visual people. And it's just amazing, uh, you know, what came out of it. There are, well, as Elizabeth always said, there are no coincidences. And I think it's like my talking to Charlie, it was no coincidence we ended up doing that book and uh, all the poems in it. Well, I want to get into one other thing that really struck me. Again, you know, I'm, I'm an old timer myself. You know, I, I read your book a long, long time ago, and it still resonates to me today. And you, you said something, you said, you say that when a, given a choice, eight out of 10 patients would actually opt for surgery rather than sustain lifestyle changes. I mean, that's a big statement. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I don't remember a lot of these things that I wrote and said, <laughs> but you know, people are afraid to do it themselves. Maybe I put it in another perspective, what taught me a lesson. When a woman with cancer was at a meeting that I went to thinking it was, see, I thought it was a meeting for doctors. It was run by Dr. Carl Simonton, who wrote the book, Getting Well Again, Helping Cancer Patients. I was the only doctor in the room. It blew my mind. A doctor is presenting a conference. 150 people are cancer patients. Oh, and one psychotherapist and me. All the rest were cancer patients. But now they could sit with me. And the one sitting next to me said, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. See, that's what changed my whole life. Because I thought, if I help people live, I'm not a failure. You know, I can't make people live forever and cure everything, but I can help them live. So we go back to the office. We send out 100 letters saying, want to live a longer, better life? Come to a meeting. I told the secretary, put in the letter. It's only for our patients who get this letter. She forgot. 
And I couldn't sleep thinking, what the hell am I gonna do with 300 people? They'll bring their relatives, their friends. What a, uh, I was a wreck. And then I get to the first meeting, 12 women showed up, okay? Now you'd say, why didn't they all come? Because I could do it wrong and then I don't get well, I'm a failure. Mm. See, so operate on me. Then it's not my fault if I don't get better. But if you tell me to draw a picture, read a book, come to a meeting and I don't get well and I'm not an artist and I don't have time to read books, I screwed up. I couldn't believe how many people were afraid to fail. You know, if you were told you're going to die, what do you got to lose? You well, know? It's the same reason that people don't follow their dreams. They don't build their business. And, uh, you know, they say the, uh, the most dreams end up in the uh, cemetery. You know, yeah, I, w I would be handed drawing sometimes. It said, and my 11 year old do this because I'm not good at drawing. I mean, but again, what are you fearing? You see, and then the survival people look, if you're going to come to our group, you have to read my book, Getting What I Mean, Love, Medicine, and Miracles. You have to draw pictures and answer. I had a couple of pages of questions, you know, about their life. I said, You have to do that. So do that. And then, uh, you know, the next meeting, maybe in two weeks, you can come. And she said, You have a meeting tomorrow. I said, Yes. Well, I'll sit up tonight and I'll read the book and I'll do that. And people would do that. See, and I know damn well that's not somebody who's going to die on schedule. You know, when you get that kind of motivated human being and somebody else, it takes them a month to read a book and draw a picture. Yeah. Well, you've been an incredible guest. It's been 22 years since you and I have connected. You came and gave a lecture for me at the Seminar Center back uh, in the old days, 1998. I'd like everybody who's listening to the show, go pick up a copy of his newest books, which are when you realize how perfect everything is, a conversation about life between grandfather and grandson, you'll read this great duet between <laughs> poetry between mm. Bernie and his uh, grandson, Charlie Siegel, and his other new book, No Endings, Only Beginnings, A Doctor's Notes on Living, Loving, and Learning Who You Are. And of course, if you haven't gotten Love, Medicine, and Miracles, what are you waiting for? Because uh, if it's not you or a loved one, they need to hear this message. Bernie, it's been great to see you again. Let's, let's make sure it's not 22 years. And, and the thing I always point out is it's not to try to avoid dying. It's to enjoy living. And then your body will get the message and you'll be amazed at how long you survive. And that's a great note to end this on. Guys, enjoy living. I know I will. God bless you, Bernie. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners, and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.